seat. It's great to see you this morning. My name is Mark. Here with Sarah and down from Harvest Glasgow. And so excited to be together with you this morning. I'm going to invite you to uh, turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. We're going to start. Uh, we're going to jump into the middle of the book of Acts. So it might feel a bit jarring for you uh, as we uh, look into the story of the Apostle Paul. And uh, we're going to look very closely at what the Apostle Paul does, but I want us to keep in mind that the book of Acts is not the story of how great the apostles are, but the book of Acts is the story about how powerful and good God is. Uh, and it's the story of what happens when we faithfully proclaim Christ. So this is what Acts chapter 18 says, verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul believed, and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Well, in this passage, we see uh, the Apostle Paul and his story. He is on a missionary journey. He, uh, the scripture says here that Paul left Athens. So he's in Greece. So he left Athens and he went to Corinth. And um, we get this snapshot of Paul after he has started this missionary journey he encounters something that we all encounter, but it's surprising that the Apostle Paul would experience it, fear. And I don't know if you've ever started something and then like halfway through you get really afraid and you're like, this isn't worth it, I'm going to quit. Well, it happened to me uh, and my, my small group of guys on Friday night, we went wild camping just south of here, um, maybe about half an hour, 45 minutes south of here during Storm Betty. And we were setting up the tent and watching it try to blow away. And so we thought, maybe this is a bad idea. What should we do? Should we press on? Should we quit? No, we're just going to stick with it. Uh, by 2 a.m., none of us had slept a wink, and it felt like our tents were going to collapse. And by 4.30 a.m., one of the tents did collapse. The pole broke in half. And we were afraid for our lives. And so as quickly as we could, we tore down camp. And so that was us by 6.30 in the morning yesterday at the McDonald's in air, enjoying a nice breakfast. Well, we all are tempted to quit. 
we start something and we get afraid and we all have fear in our lives and i wonder what you're most afraid of there's all kinds of fear there's actual fear we should have showed more respect for storm betty that's actual fear but then there's perceived fear things like acrophobia fear of heights nomophobia the fear of not having a working phone Arachnophobia, of course, is a fear of spiders, scorpions, ticks. And then there's phobia phobia, which is the fear of developing phobias. I mean, some of those are real fears. You might have a fear of spiders, but never encounter one or live in a place. But, so that would be an irrational fear, wouldn't it? Or you might have a fear of developing a phobia and it could consume your thoughts. You need to just maybe talk to someone and get some help about that if that's your fear. Fear of not having your phone, I think all of us young people can relate to that. When I say us young people, I mean you young people. But so we're going to think about Paul, the Apostle Paul, this giant of the faith, encountering fear. And he's out multiplying churches, and we see God meet him in his fear. And so the first thing we see here that as Paul is experiencing fear, God gives him purpose and pain. And so for us, uh, we see that he gives me purpose in pain. And that's in verses 1 through 4. So Paul, as he, he comes from Athens to Corinth, it's kind of a short encapsulation, but he'd experienced a lifetime of persecution in his missionary journeys up to this point. An angry mob threw stones at him till they thought he was dead. They dragged him out of Lystra. He was beaten with rods and imprisoned in Philippi. And everywhere he went, he was slandered, threatened, laughed at, opposed. And it's after all of this that he came from Athens to Corinth. And we have a map of Corinth just to kind of show you where this is. Uh, in the world, there's the boot of Italy. I'm not sure if you call that the boot of Italy in Scotland, but that's how we refer to it in the states and then you see Corinth there at the top Sparta's all the way at the bottom there that whole region is actually a region uh, called Corinth and then Corinth is the actual city at the top there so Paul he walked 45 miles he pretty much walked wherever he went if he wasn't in a ship so just to give you some perspective that's like you setting out from here to Greenock and saying, okay, I'm gonna walk all the way there. But also imagine that you're walking from a massive city of cultural heritage and influence to another massive city of cultural influence. So 45 miles. And Corinth was an important city. It was a hub of Roman paganism and a hotbed of immorality. So Paul loved to go to big cities because he saw their importance. He saw uh, that large, diverse crowds of people would be gathered there in these cities. And these people could take the gospel back to their homelands. Uh, Corinth itself was a trade city. Um, Athens, ancient and established, right? You think of all the ruins that had been, been so there were probably ruins that were there in Paul's day of ancient Athens, um, and now we think of Athens as just this ancient city. Well, it was. Corinth was a brand new city. It was at an intersection of the prevailing east-west trade route, 
Athens was a center of philosophical rumination. Corinth was a pulsating center of commerce and immorality. And in Athens, towering over the city was the temple of Aphrodite. Is that a familiar name to you, Aphrodite, the goddess of love? In Corinth, love was literally worshipped. They worshipped love on that great hill. There, Corinthians would make offerings to Athena and declare love is love is love is love. But like all false worship, it hid the reality of what was really going on. Because down below off the hill, there was slavery and oppression and brokenness and sin. Corinth had been built uh, on the order of Julius Caesar because 100 years prior, the Romans came in and actually destroyed the previous version of Corinth. So Corinth had been an existing city. The Romans came in and said, we're going to destroy you. So 100 years later, Julius Caesar says, okay, I want this to become the model of the Roman Empire to display the glory of Rome. So it was a boom town by the time Paul visited, full of new money. Roman freedmen were settled there and made their money by robbing the graves of the previous residents, taking all these riches to build a new Corinth. And so Julius Caesar had his bejeweled city. It gleamed with the glory, power, and majesty of Rome. So this is where Paul is walking into, into this new city where love is worshipped. And he meets, in verse 2, we see uh, he found a Jew named Aquila um, and his wife, Priscilla. And so uh, it's not just Paul who's introduced to us here. So we have some other characters. You might be familiar with them. If you've read some of the Bible, you might not be familiar with them. Um, but it's a reminder that in any place, these two had been, they've been kicked out of Rome. In any place, there's a whole variety of people who are contending with what it means to find purpose in life. I guess you could boil it down to a phrase like, remember that everyone you meet is going through something? A bit vague. But it hints at the reality that we aren't just a bunch of, we aren't just a bunch of disconnected, unrelated, or even oppositional people who somehow ended up here in air. No, there's something bigger going on. There's a bigger story at work. We share so much in common together, both those of us who are following Jesus and those who don't follow him. We're all living lives where we're trying to make sense of purpose, pain, and position in life. And everyone is finding answers to these questions, whether they're handed down in generational sin or philosophy or religious belief. From the high school student who's deciding what comes next after year five, to the community worker trying to eke out a living, to the young adult with tremendous talent in a place with limited opportunity, to the pensioner trying to make sense of this digital new world, there's a commonality of pursuit toward how we define life, and then either moving forward or running away from what we find. And so Paul, He's, he's trying to find purpose, right? He's not just like this machine, this like disciple-making machine who can do no wrong. No, he is a human just like you and I. He's trying to find purpose in the midst of pain and, 
Aquila and Priscilla are the same. They've recently moved from Rome because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And they met Paul because they had the same trade. Did you know Paul had a side hustle? He had a side job. He was a leather worker or a tent maker. And we don't know how it happened, but, but this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, they believed in the gospel. And they hosted Paul in their home. Later, they would accompany him to Ephesus. They helped teach Apollos the gospel. They rescued Paul at some point and were able to teach many others about the Jesus. And here in this couple, this married couple, we see people who are living their lives with great purpose. They're working humbly. They're seeking God fervently. They're ready to host ready to teach as opportunities arise, willing to uproot themselves, and willing to be rooted for the sake of Jesus and his church. And they're tent makers. So when I hear the word tent makers, it's a bit triggering because our tent just blew away on Friday, but um, tent maker is actually, it, it, it goes beyond just making tents. It really means leather worker. And so Paul would have had it, uh, and. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla would have had a, a tremendously important skill in this time in history. Leather workers were able to cut and sew together leather to make all kinds of products, including tents. This was a very valuable skill to have, um, especially as the Roman army required a lot of leather items. So they would have been busy. They would have had a lot of work. And Paul used this skill to provide for himself so as to avoid, you know, he just wanted to keep going and sharing the message. But at times, he was, he was broke. He was skimped. He didn't have anything, but he had this skill so he could provide for himself. So here we see him setting up a base of operations in a new city. So he comes in. He tries to meet up with some similarly skilled craftsmen and begin his work there. And you can imagine him speaking as he worked. It's not that he's just doing his job. He doesn't see his work life and his spiritual life as, as separate. He sees them as uh, with great continuity. He could speak as he worked, reasoning with anyone and everyone that came by. And here Paul is involved in a lucrative business in a big city full of wealthy people. And because he was Roman, he he could have gone straight to the top. He could have become very wealthy there. Could have easily been distracted by riches or status or by hedonism. And he faced all those temptations in Corinth. But we see that Paul is not just the great missionary traveler, the exalted orator who addressed the Acropolis. He's also able to work a trade and earn a living. He's working hard as unto the Lord. But he's not separating his love for God and his love for people. He's not making a distinction between that and his work in this time. They are combined. Our lives are meant to be integrated in such a way that we resist the urge and the modern perspective to have a secular life and a sacred life. But instead, to see all of life as full of acts of worship 
that either lead us toward or lead us away from God, who made us. Christ who came to save us and the Holy Spirit who wants to indwell us. And we see in verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. So Paul's life is with others. There's a continuity to it. Um, it he, there's a through line. He's working and he's sharing the gospel. He's going into the synagogue and he's reasoning with them. He's just as ready to patiently reason in the synagogue to thoroughly discuss the scriptures and to get into the fine details about how the whole Bible is one story pointing to Jesus as the Savior and King of the world as he is to sit and thoughtfully discuss life with those who have never heard of the God of the Bible before. He would painstakingly stretch out leather, cutting it into intricate shapes, joining them together in clean, strong lines, and at the same time build relationships with his customers and fellow workers, urging everyone around him to put their trust and confidence in Jesus. And all of this took place in the context of peril and pain. Paul found great purpose in a city filled with people pursuing pleasure and prosperity. His purpose came from God who always provides. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 11 to 13, Paul says this, to the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, we labor, working with our own hands, when reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's quite like a job description right there. Or in your social media, put that in your bio. The scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. Paul the Apostle. How does he find purpose in the midst of that? It's only because his eyes are fixed on Jesus. Because he knows personally who Jesus is. So he finds purpose in pain. And that's because God gives you and me purpose in pain. The second thing we see here in verses 5 to 8, he gives me wisdom in conflict. Verses 5 to 8, so Paul has been in Corinth for a time and he's both tent making and he's going and reasoning in the synagogue. But then in verse 5, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Jesus was, that the Christ was Jesus. So here come Silas and Timothy. Um, they actually freed Paul up to become occupied with the word, likely because they brought an offering with them from the Macedonian churches. So Paul was finally freed up. He didn't have to do the tent making anymore. Um, so he was occupied full time with the word of God. And what a blessing it is to have someone who is occupied with teaching the word of God. What a gift God has given this church with Lee, with Pastor Lee, who's devoting himself to preaching the word of God. Are you thankful for your pastor? Are you praying for him uh, in his efforts? Um, what a gift it is to have someone who is caring for our spirits and souls because we need care, don't we? 
We need to be fed by God's word. And so thanks, brother, for your faithfulness. And we're just praying for years more of that and for God to continue to work in your heart as you preach the word. And he's not just studying the word so he can reason in the way of like, let me prove to you logically why this makes sense. He's, he's himself in his spirit is occupied with the word of God. So he himself is motivated by, focused on, and enthralled with the word of God. Paul is not just preaching as if it's his job title. He's preaching because his life has been changed by Jesus. And he's really focused on the Jews in the synagogue. So in verse 5, he's occupied with the word. He's testifying to the Jews. So he's focused on the Jews in the synagogue. He's drawing on his own personal knowledge and experience that Jesus is the Christ. If you're like me, maybe you hear the term synagogue and wonder exactly what that is. I mean, this church meets in a school building, so it's maybe not entirely different, but for a lot of people, they might think church and say, oh, well, where's the church building? Uh, but a synagogue in this day and age would have meant would have met in a house. And so we have actually a picture of what a synagogue might have looked like in that time. It would be held in a person's home and therefore would be closely connected to the person who owned it. Um, there were, would have been a variety of people gathering there from Jewish worship, worshipers who had uh, left Israel to Greek worshipers of God who were studying the scripture and seeking God's truth. So a variety of people meeting in a home week after week to pursue God. It is such a gift from God to meet others who are honestly seeking him. Now, sometimes in church, it can be tempting to think, oh, I'm gathering at church with so-and-so and that person. But it is a gift from God to gather with people who are honestly pursuing him. That is something that uh, God help us elevate our view of what his church is and how important it is and what a gift it is to be able to gather week in and week out. And in this city that never sleeps, this city of Corinth of money and immorality, here's this small gathering of Jews seeking God. And as often happened with Paul, it's not that he just preaches and things go along, but opposition arises. This happens time after time with him. So some of them begin to express opposition in verse 6. They opposed and reviled him. So things turned nasty. They got personal. They used abusive speech to slander and try to discredit Paul. And so Paul responds. He shakes out his garment. Do you see that there? He says... It says, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent for now. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And when I read that, I thought, okay, Paul's finally had enough. He snapped. I mean, he's maybe triggered. You know, he's been through a lot. I've been in a place like that probably this morning with my kids where, you know, like I've had enough. 
Is this, is this what's happening with Paul? Is he just sort of like losing it? Well, he, he symbolically shakes out his garments. I mean, you couldn't blame him, right? After being chased across Asia Minor, beaten with rods, left for dead. You couldn't blame him. This is not a normative response, though, from Paul. Um, if my children don't listen to me, I can't shake out my North Face fleece or knock the dust from my Doc Martens smooth leather lace-up boots and say, I'm done! That's not, this is not a normative response. You cannot justify your anger or my anger with what we see Paul doing here. It's important to be clear in our minds that those who reject Christ those who blaspheme by rejecting him as God, they will answer to God for that. That's ultimately who they are answered to. They don't have to answer to you, to me. We are not perfect judges. Paul isn't triggered by personal offense here, nor is he giving up sharing the gospel message. He hears the name of Christ being blasphemed, and that leads him to say, okay, if Christ's name is not exalted here, I will go to another place and exalt his name there. And he doesn't have to go far. In verse 7, it says, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. How far did he have to go? His house was next door to the synagogue. Woo! Okay, so he left and went next door. Titius Justus, he was likely a Roman by birth, wealthy, he was attracted to the Jewish faith. He's described as a worshiper of God. A worshiper of God, someone who simply has a healthy fear of God. It doesn't say that he knew the gospel by heart, or that he read John Piper, or that he could recite the Apostles' Creed. It doesn't say any of that. He was simply a worshiper of God. And this is an instructive guideline for us, isn't it? It's tempting to, when we think of other people, we need to to hear the gospel message, to sort of, in our minds, have an irrational fear toward them, where we, we fill in the blanks for them about what they will or won't believe, or because they say certain things or live a certain way, we assume, we sort of fill in the blanks for them. We see the scary spiders everywhere, even if there are no scary spiders anywhere to be found. Um, and so we can tempted to be silent, but this is the line. It's pr a pretty low bar. He had a fear of God. He worshipped God. He was giving God without possibly any other understanding. He was just worshipping God. He had a baseline appropriate reverence for God. And so here, next door to the synagogue, Paul begins meeting and preaching the gospel, and he did that for 18 months. People gathered in this home to hear the message of Jesus. And you can imagine that the Jews next door were probably not very thrilled that Paul had moved into the adjoining building to continue preaching Christ. But here we see the power of the gospel. We also see that Paul wasn't just dismissing the Jews out of hand or out of a personal sense of outrage. And so we see here, verse seven, he was, 
in the house of, of Titius Justus. The house was next door to the synagogue in verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, a.k.a. the next-door neighbor, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, a.k.a. probably the entire house next door. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. It's amazing, isn't it? As a result, many of the people gathered together believed and were baptized. And here we see that Paul required God's wisdom in conflict. You and I, how we need that. How we need God's wisdom in conflict. I mean, imagine if Paul had responded in the flesh. So he's already shaken out his garments and said, your blood be on your own hands. But somehow he did that without just giving full vent to his anger. And the scripture says the fool gives the full vent, gives full vent to his anger. So imagine if Paul had responded in the flesh, triggered by yet another group of ignorant and blind guides. What if he flew off the handle and raged? He could have created a ministry devoted to preaching against the blasphemers, oppositional and antagonistic, engaging in a verbal guerrilla warfare against them, and creating one tiny battle in the midst of a vast city of hedonists, far below the temple of Aphrodite, disconnected from the people, placing their hope and trust in riches, pleasure, and idolatry. That would have been a huge mistake. And so he required God's wisdom. God gave Paul wisdom to move on from the conflict without ruining his witness. And the result was good fruit. And let me just ask you, are you triggered and tempted by something? How you and I need God's wisdom to, to navigate our encounters with the world. And oftentimes, honestly, our own unbelief. And these Corinthians entrusted their future to Jesus, putting their faith in him. They were baptized to show that they had been dead in their trespasses and sins, but were made alive in Christ. What a beautiful picture. And so, Paul needed God's wisdom in conflict. And in Romans 1.16, we, we hear his heart. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So Paul says he's not ashamed. He's, he's not feeling ashamed or giving an undue reverence toward those who think otherwise. He's not getting this phobia, this irrational fear in his mind. He's not giving into that when it comes to the gospel. He's not ashamed. Because he knows it's the power of God for salvation. And he says here, to the Jew first. So even though he's shaken out his garments, he's, he's still committed to the gospel message. Because it is the power of God to salvation. And how we need God's wisdom. And finally here, in verses 7 through 11, we see that he gives his presence and peace. He gives his presence and peace. In verse 9, we see, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many, many in this city who are my people. 
So Paul had a vision. He had a vision right after this good fruit. He had a vision, and the Lord spoke to him and said, Do not be afraid. We can remember Elijah after his great victory against the prophets of Baal. He fled in terror, didn't he? There seems to be some sort of battle being waged in Paul's heart where he is tempted with an irrational fear or suddenly everything is just dawning on him of what he's been through. The accumulation of his persecutions or maybe the temptation to stay and, and make money and just to like be done with it all. Like, okay, God, you did a great work here. But I got this leather working thing and tent making thing. You know, I just, you know, I, I poured it all out. I left that all on the field. God, I'm just going to let you take it from here. There's some sort of fear here. And in 1 Corinthians 2, in his letter to the Corinthian church, he says, And when, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. He was afraid. There, Paul was gripped by fear. Afraid. There's terror in his spirit and his mind. He's ready to, to flee. He's, he's tempted to run away. And this word phobia... It comes from a Greek word, and the Greeks actually had a god that they worshipped called Phobos. The, he was the god of panic and running away. It's cool to have a god for that, I guess. Makes me think of Monty Python. Run away! Maybe it's too niche, I don't know. But Alexander the Great was said to have made offerings to Phobos before a battle with Darius in present-day northern Iraq. And he was... Uh, Phobos, this god, was given credit for making Darius flee the battlefield. So Paul has fear. And God exhorts Paul to continue speaking, to tell the grand story of God's plan to bring salvation through Jesus. To go on speaking and don't be silent. Go on speaking and don't be silent. Those are two different commands. Go on speaking. So keep positively speaking the message. Keep getting after it. Keep doing it. And also, don't be silent. Meaning, in every moment of your life, there is an opportunity to proclaim Christ. Each, each moment is a moment where God can shine his wisdom and his purpose into any encounter, into any relationship for the glory of God. The name of Jesus. Go on speaking and don't be silent. So Paul was facing this fear of further persecution or the oppressive nature of the idolatry and immorality in Corinth, and he was tempted to be silent. And we're all tempted to elevate someone in the Bible to a lofty place. You know, this is the apostle who was sent out by the Holy Spirit for the work that he commanded. This is the author of most of the books of the, of the Bible in the New Testament. This is the man who spoke before the elite philosophers in Athens. And he was afraid, and his fear led to silence. 
Many of us face this temptation towards silence about Jesus. So we can draw some comfort that Paul was tempted in the same way. And yet I think we can learn from the persecuted church around the world. They can teach us what it means to face the threat of imprisonment and death for following Jesus. The truth is there are millions of Christians around the world who meet quietly in houses to worship Jesus. They meet in the middle of the night to share the gospel with those who are seeking him. They put themselves at great personal risk to share the good news. And this is a forced silence. This is an actual fear. But there is a silence that comes from perceived threats, where we give too much power to the culture around us. We decide in our minds how people will respond to Jesus, and so we simply shut our mouths. In our lives, this is likely, more likely to be our temptation. My school friends will mock me. I'll risk losing my job. I'll get a reputation as a Bible beater. All of these phobias, these irrational fears, do we ever even question where they come from? What's the source of these fears? What if they come from our enemy, Satan? Why on earth would we be giving in to his lies? Why? Why do I do that? Why do I not do what the scripture says, which, which says, resist the devil and he will flee? Do I ever think to do that in my mind with fears about sharing Christ? Well, what is it that is tempting you towards silence? Maybe this week you could talk with God about it and ask him to reveal what's going on in your heart with that. And in verse 10, we see God's antidote to fear. Verse 10. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. God's antidote to fear is his presence with us. And what does his presence do for us? It strengthens us against anyone who would gang up to impose their will, anyone who wants to abuse us or treat us unjustly. And we see God's command to be uh, strong in him in Joshua 1.9. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I think of this church, you're heading towards year two. You've done something. You've planted a church. Praise God. And you may be tempted to fear. What about the future? How are, how are things going to work out? How will God provide? What's going to come next? How will we keep going forward? Well, God has commanded you. Be strong. Grow in strength. Become hardened. It's like you're going to the gym and getting totally shredded. You're being courageous. Be strong, so be strengthened, but also be courageous. That's alert and resolute, looking for opportunities. I love to hear about, you know, this, uh, did you call it a larder? This uh, community opportunity you have to, to give food. Be alert, be ready to be courageous with the gospel. Don't be broken apart. Filled with dread, terrified, running away, broken down, shattered. For the Lord is with you wherever you go. God's presence strengthens us so much that we need not fear any kind of attack. I mean, imagine God 
What kind of attack would he fear? None at all. His immensity and power that is displayed when oceans roar and lightning strikes and thunderstorms rage is a minuscule representation of his overwhelming, all-encompassing power. For us, these natural disasters could easily lead to our extinction. I mean, I thought with Storm Betty, I was gonna get blown all the way to the Isle of Aaron. But God rules above them all. God who created the heavens and the earth is with us. Jesus has the power to calm every storm, to bring with his presence a lasting peace to our minds and spirits. And as we walk with Jesus and become more like him, we become stronger. We are hardened. Because he exists outside of our present circumstances and is eternal and has promised that even though we die, we shall live. We have the kind of strength and peace that surpasses all human tragedy and threat and turmoil. Even if we lose it all, we still have everything that truly matters. And then God says this. I have many in this city who are my people. God shows Paul the limits of his own perspective. The Apostle Paul, this great man, has a limited perspective. There are things that he does not know about God's plan and God's work. Paul is tempted, just like us, to assume things about our circumstances. You know, I don't have any Christian friends at school, so does my faith really matter? My whole family is apathetic. Apathetic towards God, so I don't see any hope for them being saved. My child's away at uni, child's moved down south and they're not following Jesus anymore so I must have failed I did something wrong I screwed up they're lost listen you and I don't have the full picture God has his people everywhere isn't that incredible to think about everywhere even here in air he has his people here God is at work in the lives of your classmates at school. You just need his wisdom and compassion to see it. God is at work in your family, even if it's never apparent at family parties. God is at work near and far, and your adult child, kind of a paradox, but your adult child is never outside the reach of our strong God. How we need God's presence with us to give us peace. So let me invite you to pray that God would raise up his people in your school, that he would raise up people near your family, wherever they are. God, would you show me that you have your people everywhere? And also to pray, God, I'm probably the answer to some other person's prayer. There's some child in school or there, there's some mother or father or brother or sister who is desperately praying for their loved one or their friend, for, for them to encounter Jesus. And you are the answer to that prayer. Alert, are you, are you alert? Do you have the kind of courage and alertness to think, you know what, this moment right now here today may be God answering a prayer for someone else. How we diminish the importance because of our fear 
God help us in our weakness. I have many in this city who are my people. Isaiah 52, 6-7 says, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. When we know God by personal experience, not just by theological thought or by philosophical reasoning, but through personal experience, knowing God's name, we bring the peace of God everywhere with us. The purpose in our pain, we bring it with us. The wisdom in conflict, we bring that with us. We bring his presence and peace wherever we go. And so we see in verse 11 that Paul stayed 18 months teaching the word of God. He listened, he believed, he had faith, and he stayed there for 18 months teaching the word of God. God's great story of salvation is what we are called to share. As we publish the peace that is found in Jesus, as we worship God with happy voices, we are always alert to bringing the good news with us. God promises his presence and peace. He provides wisdom in conflict. He gives purpose in pain. That's what we trust God for. Can we pray together? Lord, this morning we just uh, want to readily confess that we are too often willing to give in to fear and to have a diminished view of the power of our mighty Savior. God, help us in our weakness. Jesus, help us. In your mercy, Lord, strengthen us. Lord, I pray that we would be people who find your great purpose even in the midst of our pain. Lord, that we would be able to know that Jesus, who endured the cross and suffered the ultimate shame and the pain of the loss of everything, is with us in our weakness. And so we find great purpose there. Lord, would you give us wisdom Every day, we could leave here and just immediately find ourselves in conflict. Within 10 minutes of leaving here, we could find, it, find that to be true. Lord, it's so easy to get out of our depth and not understand how to keep moving forward. So give us wisdom, Lord. Help us to bring your name glory and not dishonor. And Lord, help us to bring your peace because you are present with us. Help us to hold on to the hope of your presence, to not lose heart, Lord. Lord, we trust you with all these things, that you hear us and that you will answer us. In Jesus' name we pray.